Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Summer Forecast High of 70s, a show where we are documenting my own journey as a 25-year-old man, discovering the musical genre of 70s folk rock for the first time. I'm your host, Tyler Henry, and along with me is my dear buddy, and uh, since the last time we recorded, another year older of a co-host, Nate Bebout. How are you today, Nato? Doing great, Tyler. I have aged, and with it has come even more wisdom to contribute mm. to this conversation. So I'm looking forward to sharing it. Not only are you uh, a good friend, but you know, one thing that I wanted to touch on was your affinity for this genre specifically. You have really kind of been serving as the the guide or the compass, I guess, of artists to be paying attention to, albums to be listening to for myself, which I've really appreciated and I've appreciated the opinions and insights that you've shared. I'd love if you could just take a couple moments to share just what the genre in this body of work as a whole has meant to you. Because I mean, again, you're only in your mid thirties. So obviously Mm -hmm. you weren't old enough to hear these guys live, but they've definitely, you have a very different relationship with these artists than I do. Right. So I just grew up in a home. It sounds like you in this way that just loved music. Both of my parents were musicians as well as um, just people who love to to listen to music and they definitely passed that love of of music on to me very early on Um, and I really am very eclectic in my music choices but I do think that if I had to choose one genre that is my favorite I would say folk music and I do think that that has a lot to do with my parents' influence. I'm sure this has happened to you, Tyler, where you get very nostalgic about the music you loved in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very much true for me. I, I have like a million Spotify playlists, but one of them for me is uh, favorite albums from the 90s because I was in junior high and high school in the 90s. And even though that music seems dated now, you know, 20 years later, um, 30 years later, I still always love it. And uh, I still listen to it on occasion. And I think that's what was happening with my parents. So both my parents were born in 1956. So um, the 70s music was all the music that they listened to in high school. Yeah. And so I have, I have some suspicions that the reason that this stuff was always playing at my house was because it was the music that they fell in love with in high school. And so um, there was definitely a lot of 70s folk, uh, definitely a lot of Crosby, Still, Nash & Young, who we're going to be talking about today. But there was also a lot of fun 70s rock, you know, Pink Floyd, um, 38 Special, uh, certainly Leonard Skinner in my house. And so, um, you know, this is definitely in, in my adolescence, the, the days of the tape deck in the car or the truck when you're driving around. And I grew up in a very rural place where you had to drive 30 minutes to get anywhere. You know, I had a 20 minute drive to get to my high school, which was the only high school in the county. So a lot of time to appreciate the tunes that mom and dad were rocking to. And so uh, if you ever want to do a a podcast about 70s rock, I might be just as helpful, but um, certainly listen to a ton of 70s folk just growing up. And and yeah, when when I meet other people who love music, you know, we were talking about this podcast and you said, there's just kind of this hole in my musical education. I'm like, oh man, that was, 
I was swimming in that growing up. And so I was really happy to say yes to this, just to talk about all these amazing artists and how they really changed music um, forever, uh, at least American music, um, and how we're seeing this resurgence in the last 10 years of folk music coming back. Uh, and that's been very fun for me as well, so. Yeah, that's good. Um, and that leads us right into our discussion today is it's an episode that I have been particularly really excited about since the project started because I would give these guys, I would say that they were one of two artists that um, is the reason why this podcast exists because my level of intrigue was so high about this group. And as I did further research, I was, you know, discovering different artists that were similar, but um, talking today about the 70s super group of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, made up of David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Graham Nash, and Neil Young. Um, this group really took the world, and especially the 70s, by storm with their unique music. And so I guess kind of to throw it back to you, Nate, I would love just to start off with Nate's first thoughts of what this band means to you, um, when you think of this music, what comes to mind. I'd love to hear your opinion on this group. You know, the first time I think I heard Crosby, Still, Nash & Young was in the tape deck of my family's car uh, and the song Our House, uh, which is just this very pretty, um, catchy, um, sweet, kind of innocent song about an idyllic house and there's cats in the yard and everything's easy and it's just this, such a pretty little song and you know it's one of those for me Crosby Stills Nash and Young was a lot about that like my childhood was innocence and this song is like cute and innocent and stuff and as I've grown up and, and listened to and learned a lot more it's like <laughs> there has been a little bit of tarnishing of that like oh this is just a cute innocent little band it's like no this is the epitome of sex drugs rock and roll I mean like yeah. Crosby Stills Nash and Young um, they were it. I mean, they, their second performance ever as a band was at Woodstock in 1969. You know, like this is, uh, this is a band that almost, that each individual member of them almost OD'd many times and like, you know, just all this stuff. But I think when I think of Crosby, Still Nash & Young now, I just think of those beautiful harmonies, the counter melodies, the ink, the intricacy of the music, but also the accessibility. Um, when you look at their discography, you realize that they actually only put out one real studio album. They, they had certainly a lot of other songs. I mean, they, they came out with a couple more, one in 88, one in 99, but the sound is not the same as that, that first album that, that we're going to talk about uh, came out in 1970 called Deja Vu. And it was it was mind-blowingly good. Um, and so, yeah, and it's, and, and they're, you know, like we said, that the, the genres haven't laminated as much here in the 70s. And so sometimes they sound like traditional folk. Sometimes they sound like psychedelic jam bands. Sometimes they yeah. sound like classic rock, you know? Um, and I just love this music. It, it, it makes me happy. I, I, I resonate with it, you know, um, all these years later. Yeah, I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just a huge fan of, of the group. 
despite all their flaws and foibles, mm -hmm. uh, they, they created, they had lightning in a bottle for a few years uh, and it really shifted music uh, in many ways forever. It did, yeah. Their, their group definitely um, was one that took the music world by storm and definitely has left its musical footprint. Um, but if we rewind it all the way back and just to see how this group formed, uh, it's wild to me and something that you and I have talked about beforehand was these guys have been and continue to be, even in their old age, just career musicians. Before the band uh, formed, uh, each member was um, was a part of a different band. David Crosby came from this legendary uh, group called The Birds in the 60s. Uh, Stills and Young were partners in uh, this great group, Buffalo Springfield, which we mentioned in last week's episode as really a founding father pioneer band for the genre of folk rock. Um, and Graham Nash came over from the UK uh, as a part of that um, British invasion that we mentioned in a group called the Hollies, right? And when the late 60s came into the 70s, uh, those groups, you know, dissolved or lost their form as what they, you know, were known for. And these four guys kind of found themselves homeless in terms of musically homeless yep, yep. Um, and the story of how they got together is just so funny to me because Stills and Crosby became friends they go to a Holly's concert together right. and at that concert was um, Cass Elliott of the Mamas and the Papas right. and Mama Cass goes up to him as because of course they're all friends and right. says I know you guys are looking to form this group, do you need a harmony singer? Because she was also friends with Graham Nash from the Hollies. And so after that show, they met. Um, and that's kind of where the relationship formed. But I don't know if you saw any of this. In terms of in current day, none of them can land on where they actually formed their musical band. There's not, they don't have an agreement in terms of the memory that started CSN. Yeah, I, I have read uh, Graham Nash's autobiography called Wild Tales. Mm. Uh, David Crosby has a couple autobiographies out too. And yeah, there's, there's no consensus. Um, I, I watched an interview with them uh, with, I, I think it was Charlie Rose. And, um, and the first question out of the gate was, can you guys even agree when the band started? And all of them were sitting there shaking their heads saying, nope, there's no, there's no consensus about when the band started. Um, but they did, the three of them, put together an album called Crosby, Stills, and Nash in 1969 before they added Neil Young to the roster, you know? So, mm -hmm. yeah, somehow they got connected. The crazy thing about these guys is how, how much they knew everybody. So, yeah. um, so Graham Nash was, was very close when he was with the Hollies, with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. He actually performs on some of the albums of the Beatles. Then he comes to America and he gets right away plugged into, maybe because of those, you know, musical credentials, he gets plugged in exactly to what you're saying to some of the absolute top tiers. We're talking mamas and papas, Bob Dylan. Uh, there's a story that Graham Nash tells in his autobiography of being invited over to Johnny Cash's house. And the, the guests who were there that night to eat dinner were Chris Christopherson, um, Bob Dylan, uh, Graham Nash, Joni Mitchell, they were dating at the time. Um, and, uh, 
and something else. And, and Johnny Cash says at the beginning, like, I have a tradition in my house and you have to play for your dinner. So everybody had to do a song. Uh, and I'm just thinking about all of those people in one spot, all of these like absolute legends and icons, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, they knew everybody. They were connected yeah. with every, anybody who was anybody in music in the seventies, they were connected with them somehow. Yeah. I, I really like that as well. You know, you hear of like the Greenwich village on, on the East side. And then, you know, you'll hear of the Laurel Canyon, which is in, you know, the, the, the mountains of Hollywood, right. Mm -hmm. That, Mm -hmm. All of these artists gathered together. And uh, I love that a lot because now, or at least maybe, you know, a few years back, early 2000s, you see like these rock band rivalries that always get the headlines because like we love it. It's drama and it's kind right. of funny that like two groups can both be famous and also just have like a petty fight over a girl or something. <laughs> but the difference with these artists were like, they were just friends singing songs on couches and smoking weed. And like, it's the funniest thing to me of like, there wasn't this cutthroat trying to get ahead. They were like, they simply wanted to make art and that's what they pursued. Yeah. There's a, there was a ton of, uh, and, it, and I think it was important that it was the seventies and this was the beginning of the free love movement and um, just kind of like a, a less possessive, or a monogamous approach to, to sexuality. Um, so yeah, Joni Mitchell was uh, lovers with David Crosby before she, she met Graham Nash and they began a two-year relationship. Uh, but there was no jealousy or anything weird. It was just like, okay. Um, and in fact, some of the stories about all of those relationships and how they switch partners and stuff as very eyebrow raising and, <laughs> uh, and not for... Um, not for the faint of hearts. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a very different uh, approach to, to relationships and working together. It was for sure. So that, that Crosby, Stills, Nash album that came out in 69 uh, won the Grammy for uh, Best New Artist, right? And it has, you know, some of their most iconic songs of Sweet Judy Blue Eyes that Stephen Stills wrote for his then girlfriend, Judy Collins, who's another famous singer. And helplessly hoping which is oh man both of those songs just like i just close my eyes and just i love them load away those are so yeah, good yeah just sing to me right so the funny thing is is you know at this point if you're listening and you're wondering i thought the group was crosby stills nash and young you're not talking about young right mm -hmm. that is very true because at first uh neil young went off on his own and was releasing solo records mm -hmm when these three had gotten together uh, and how he got wrapped up into the fold was for that first album, uh, Stephen Stills, he played every instrument except for the drums. Right. So like the other guys, the, you know, Nash was saying how like they would play acoustic on maybe some of the songs that they led, but other than the drums, Stills played everything. And so they released this album, they win a Grammy and they're like, Oh no, we're going to have to tour and we have one guy playing five instruments. Like, how is this going to work? We need to rope another guy in, right? Right, right. And well, and Steve, sorry to interrupt, but just to point out that Stephen Stills um, was a incredible guitarist. Um, as far as electric guitar, his name uh, in the 70s was next to Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Stephen Stills. Those were the three 
best electric guitarists in the 70s. And so just to speak to his music, musical talent, um, he, was a, he was a phenom. He was. And, you know, he really was the focal point that the band, even when you add the why, it pretty much revolved around Stephen Stills, just in terms of, like you were saying, his musicianship and his ability to pull all the different pieces together. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned that because the thing that I loved, which would have been super cool, as much as I love Neil Young, uh, I saw that their first choice for this additional person was Jimi Hendrix. They went to him and were like, hey, we need a guy to join our band as we tour and, you know, move forward. And he just was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to. I'm sorry. Yes. Which is so funny to me because how different this group would have been seeing just, you know, the difference in music that Jimi Hendrix pursued. Um, so yeah, you, you have to think of this group as a super group. That's the name that they are given because each of the individuals put out their own albums mm -hmm. and sometimes they collaborate with just one or two of them. So there are albums that are released over these years of just Crosby and Nash. Yeah. And then there are some albums, obviously Neil Young has an incredible successful solo career. So it's like, there are these four musicians, but you can literally pull each individual out or add them in any combination. And it's always good. Like that's yeah. how good they are. <laughs> so yeah. when you put them all four together, yeah, like they are the super group of the seventies for sure. Yeah. Which is wild. Um, just because of, you know, how well they blend and just how professional they all are. So they add Neil Young, uh, which again was Stephen Stills buddy from Buffalo Springfield. Uh, and the story that I love the most about that was Graham Nash was very hesitant to adding him to the group, right? He said, I felt like what we had with our voices was perfect. We didn't really need to add anything more. I wanted to add just like a backup guitar player. Neil Young at this point has already kind of established himself. And so like, he's going to steal too much of the limelight. And they're like, no, Stills was trying to say, we need this guy. And so Nash says, I need to meet him first. If he's going to join my band, I need to meet him. And so he gets breakfast with him uh, in New York. And uh, I love that he said, I had no idea who this guy was. And after that one-on-one -on -one breakfast with Neil Young, I would have made him king of the world. <laughs> he was funny. He was cool. We, had, we got along great. And instantly, he said, I went back to the studio and I was like, he's the guy. We need him, right? And so he joins and they, uh, like you said, they've played Woodstock. And, uh, and then they released Deja Vu, which is, you know, this iconic album that we'll be discussing a little bit later when we have our guests come on the show. It's wild that they rose to the absolute top of what the musical world could provide. Um, and then they break up, then they dissolve, right? Like in the late seven, in late 70, they, uh, Neil Young just decided like, hey, I'm going to actually go back to this solo thing that I've been doing. Crosby, Stills, and Nash were just kind of left in the dust, like, well, what in the world? We, we literally are, you know, the most famous band in the world right now. Right. And so that has always just been so intriguing to me is, as you mentioned, they are super group. And they each talked about, we got together never intending to be a band forever because we all had aspirations for solo careers, side projects and such. Um, but you would think they might have stayed together longer than a year, initially at least, right? Yeah, they were they were being called to and compared to the American version of the Beatles. Yeah. Um, and their impact from that one album was so much that even though they ended up dissolving as a band after that first album came out in 1970, 
in 71, they released a live album, uh, basically of just mm -hmm. live shows that they recorded while touring Deja Vu. That album's called Four Way Street. That went to number one. Yeah. And then three years later, they released an album called So Far, which was a compilation album. I don't know how you have a compilation album when you only have one studio album, but they managed to fit other songs yeah. on there. Yeah. I think it was hits from the 1969 Crosby, Stills, and Nash album, plus the hits from Deja Vu. But that compilation album goes number one. So in their um, very, very short time with this, you know, the, like I said, lightning in a bottle, these songs, they released three different albums, all of which topped the charts. And so, yeah, it was, it was absolutely earth shatteringly good. So when they, when they break up after 70, I, I mean, breakup's kind of a, a, a weird way to say it, just because, you know, they go off and they come back. The, their relationship over the last 50 years has been pretty fluid. But Neil Young, he goes off and does his thing. Like we said, each of them have different um, solo careers. But as they, uh, you know, what they created was so beautiful and so good. Um, that they were always so highly sought after. There was always like, when are we getting back together? When are you guys getting back together? And eventually, later on in the 70s, they decide to finally come back together. And this band is the first band that was responsible for an all-football stadium tour. Yeah. Right? Like, that's, I mean, that's huge. When we think of bands now that are touring and they get arena tours, those are the biggest names in the business. And Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young were the first group to do that. Well, when you think about their second show being Woodstock and that they played to half a million people, right? Like that's what, that's how many folks attended that music festival, that three-day festival. Um, yeah, and that they slayed at Woodstock. Um, and funny that they had previously asked Jimi Hendrix to be their fourth because he was the, he was the act after them at Woodstock. So Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young walk off the stage and Jimi Hendrix walks on stage at Woodstock and starts playing the Star Spangled Banner on that reverse strat that he's so famous for, for shredding on. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they started out in the stratosphere. I mean, like, they, they, their first, you know, Fourier putting their toe in the water was world-changing. So, yeah, they, when they went on tour, it was like everybody wanted to see them for sure. The other thing I'll say um, as far as um, their musical style is it seems like they kind of have two, two approaches to songs. One are like straight, what I call straightforward songs, and they're like more predictable and they follow more of a discernible um, kind of rhythm. You know, I think of Our House or uh, Teach Your Children Well. It's like, we know it's like going to be a verse and then the chorus and then the verse and the chorus. But then they also have these other kinds of songs that I call meandering jams. Uh, and it's like, they don't follow any pattern at all. Um, and Deja Vu was basically filled with half and half. Um, some of them are just, uh, we mentioned uh, Sweet uh, Judy Blue Eyes. Uh, it's a song that, that um, was it Graham Nash that wrote that or Stephen Stills? I think it was Stephen yeah. Stills. Um, that was, oh, yeah, it was Stephen Stills. Uh, so that was four different songs yeah. that he smushed into one song. That's, yeah. called, uh, that's why it's called Sweet. Um, and it's like, they did that kind of stuff all the time, where it was like, you know, I don't know if it's drug-induced or not, but it seems like that was three different songs, but you guys just turned it into one song, and 
somehow it worked and it's beautiful and it's magic. Um, just kind of incredible stuff. The other thing, and you can feel free to edit this out if, if this is not uh, super pertinent, but here's my other uh, memory of uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. So I, this is such a weird memory that I have that's like burned into my I love it. Uh, mind. I remember standing at Central Market Supermarket in McConnellsville, Ohio, and checking out with my parents. And I think I was in high school. We'd gone to get groceries. And I saw on the magazine rack that they had at the end of the stand um, a Rolling Stone magazine that had Melissa Etheridge and her, her partner and their two children and then uh, David Crosby on it. Mm. And at the time, uh, Melissa Etheridge and, and her partners, whose, whose name escaped me, were a very famous uh, celebrity lesbian couple that had, um, that had basically gone the route of artificial insemination so that they could have children together. And it turned into this whole like, thing for Melissa Etheridge of who's, like, who's the dad, who's the dad. Uh, they thought it was maybe Brad Pitt because Melissa Etheridge was like neighbors with Brad Pitt and they're really good friends. Well, the rumors got to the point where it was so much that they finally announced who the dad was, the, the sperm donor for their children, uh, and it was David Crosby. Yeah. And so it was this huge kind of bombshell revelation. This guy who was way, way older than them uh, saw them, thought they were a great couple, uh, was willing to, to help them to have, to have children. Well, I, I was thinking of all this before the show, and I started doing some research, and I found out um, that their son, Beckett Cipher, from that was uh, David Crosby donated uh, his sperm for their child, he just OD'd and passed away this May. Oh, man. So just, and he was 21 years old. And so um, I, I, it's, just, it's just a weird memory for me of like seeing this kid who was a baby mm. on the cover of a magazine knowing that his biological father was David Crosby. And then as we were getting ready to do this show, I was doing research. And I found out that kid passed away because of an opioid addiction. It, like, it totally bummed me out, uh, even though that was the first time I thought of that baby since I saw him on that magazine cover you know, 20 years ago. Um, so anyways, very colorful. Th these guys, you know, last, last week we talked about Simon and Garfunkel. And really, even though they were big personalities and, you know, they weren't very controversial people, mm. you know, the, the music kind of speaks for themselves. Whereas Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, even though the music is amazing and so good, these folks' lives in some ways were even bigger. And so it's easy yeah. to be distracted from the music, from all of their ex escapades um, that they're doing while not performing, you know. It is pretty wild. And we see that like their um, egos and their larger than life personalities uh, with, of course, the mixture of cocaine uh, was the recipe that, you know, has really been the reason why they have been torn apart for for so long, or at least at least within those initial first 30 years, why they were so back and forth with each other. I've been looking into a lot of um, just beef that came between their different relationships and and, yeah. the, and the breakup that came as a result and it really was just um four very very talented and gifted musicians that wanted music to sound this way um and somebody else in the band wanted to sound it the other way and so 
eventually the egos won out and that's and you know that's why they that's why they crumbled yeah um and you know that those those other albums the uh american dream that comes out in 1988 and then uh looking forward that comes out in 1999 they're they're not it <laughs> they're, they're not they did that they um and maybe it is this different tug and pull of different musical influences that they're trying, but um, it, it's still good. And they're still world-class musicians. There's no doubt about it, but you would be hard pressed to find anyone who could name a song off of either one of those albums because they just, they didn't have the lightning that they had in the seventies. Maybe it's cause they all got clean. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, the, everything else that came after just seemed very forced. They, they had a two year run of just absolute beauty and you could even extend it maybe a little bit more with shows that they would have done without releasing full length albums. But um, really after that, you can just fall on their solo careers and their different side projects that they had, because I'll tell you what the, the Crosby Nash work together is really, really good. Yeah. The Stills Young band is also very good. Uh -huh. um, but you know just personalities and all they clash and sometimes those things don't work out uh neil young was such a fascinating character for me in this whole process because at first he didn't join they convinced him to join right and uh he was flaky ever since mm -hmm. they released this absolute iconic album in deja vu and then like he became unreliable for the next 50 years so yeah, it's it's just been so funny to me. I heard one of them say that uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash was a band. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young was a project. I could get right? I could get on board with that because, like, you see, you see at least some variants of those first three together um, through the next decades. But right. you know, Young was in and out. But then again, like nobody has reached his height of success as a solo artist or anything like. I mean, you could even argue that Neil, as a solo artist, became bigger than CSNY. Yeah. And so, like, it made sense for the other three to stick together, but Neil was drinking the right kind of Kool-Aid. And it, I think uh, supergroups are very rare um, that they work um, it, because of all the different influences and personalities and um, opinions. I, I think Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, for my money, was the second biggest supergroup ever. Uh, and I'm going to tell you who the biggest one is in a second. But their projects together were more successful than any other supergroup, specifically Deja Vu and, and the work that piggybacked off of it. Um, the biggest supergroup ever, if you're, if you're wondering, as far as Nate's concerned, uh, is The Highwaymen, which is... Oh, wow. uh, Willie Nelson, Waylon yeah. Jennings, Johnny Cash, and Chris Christopherson. Um, that, those names are even bigger than David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Graham Nash, and Neil Young. And they put out three albums together, but none of them were better than the work that they did as individuals, right? Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a fun idea, and I would have given anything to go to a Highwaymen tour, you know, or like catch one of those shows, because that would have been freaking awesome. Um, but they, their collaborations were never as successful as the CSNY collaborations obviously were. 
wrapping up this discussion, um, I would love to throw it back to you, Nate, and see uh, where can we hear these fellas now? Where are their musical influences still lingering in a tangible way that people my age would be able to pull from kind of a deal? So um, kind of tricky because they are so against the mold because of the reasons we've talked about. So I'll give you um, two two answers for two different reasons. Um, so as far as who has those really tight, beautiful harmonies that just soar uh, and those songs that can both be rock and roll, but also in other tracks be like really melodic and pretty. My two bands for that is The Lone Bellow, mm. uh, who just, they just put out a recent album that's phenomenal, and The Head and the Heart. Uh, I think mm. that they kind of capture that Every member has a beautiful voice. They have these really beautiful harmonies. As far as on the other side is like, what is a comparable talented artist collaborating with some degree of success? Um, the first is actually just a little EP that came out a couple of years ago called Goodbye Road. Um, and that was a collaboration between the folk bands, Johnny Swim, Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors and Penny and Sparrow. Mm. That's a gorgeous little EP. And it starts to get in the neighborhood of like, this is what real collaboration between already like established artists could look like. And the other one uh, that's kind of along the same veins, although the genre is completely different, is the Goat Rodeo Sessions, um, which uh, is Yo-Yo Ma, uh, the world famous celloist, mm -hmm. and uh, Chris Thiele, the, the world renowned MacArthur Genius Grant Award winner. Uh, who was the mandolin player for Nickel Creek yeah. and also hosts the show. Um, what's that? It used to be called the Prairie Home Companion, but now it's called something else. Um, I know what you're talking about. I think I've watched one of them. I don't remember, but he's like the host and they do right. talk music. Um, the Goat Rodeo Sessions is that. Like you, you, They found the four most talented musicians in their, in their genre and they just like, smush music together and it's gorgeous and it's complicated and it's a, it's a mess and it's awesome so that, that's where i think you could you could hear some of their influences on the one side of the the spectrum of harmonies and on the other side the idea of a super group coming together with yeah. some success yeah those are all really good um and so if you know those and you like those uh again we are imploring you to check out this album and the the artist of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Um, and if you don't know any of those that we just mentioned, listen to those in a more modern context. And if they sound good, bop on back to the 70s and check out a little CSNY. Mm -hmm. uh, we assure you it will be worth your time. So mm -hmm. uh, that ends our conversation here. Uh, we'll be back in a bit with our two guests. And uh, we'll be discussing that huge album, Deja Vu, that we've been talking about um, uh, that came out in 1970 by the supergroup of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Stick around. We are very excited to have our guests with us here today, um, two guys that we really care about. Um, the first of which was uh, my dear friend and college roommate my senior year, Matt, uh, whom I really love and excited to have him on. Matt, it's good to see you, buddy. 
Good to see you, Tyler. Really happy to be on here. Yeah, absolutely. And the second guest uh, is a mutual friend of both Nate and I, a guy that uh, is beloved and uh, loves music as well. A guy that I really wanted to have on the show, not only because he loves music, but also because he has an opinion on everything and is always willing to share it. It is our dear friend, uh, Jake, as well. How are you doing, Jake? Hi, Tyler. I'm doing well. Hi, Nate. Hi, Matt. Good to see you guys. Uh, really glad you're here with us. Um, and as we just dive right into our discussion over this great Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young album, Deja Vu, Ewing, I'd like to start with you for our first question, if you don't mind. Uh, I would just love your insight on you yourself are a proclaimed Neil Young fan. You love Neil Young. Um, and so as you look over, you know, his whole career as a whole, like, what's your thoughts on this particular CSNY uh, segment of his of his career it came early on, uh, but has nonetheless been a huge part. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I think that's a really good question. Um, this is the first Neil Young album with CSNY. With CSNY, they were they released an album as just Crosby, Stills and Nash before this. Um, I think it's hard to separate Neil Young from Crosby, Stills and Nash at this point in his career. Um, even if you look at Buffalo Springfield, which was Neil Young's first band. Stephen Stills is in that band. So it's, he's still collaborating with essentially the same people. And then even as Neil Young's solo career progresses, all of these dudes are also on his solo albums. So like David Crosby is still singing, singing harmonies on Neil Young's solo albums. Graham Nash is playing keyboards and piano on Neil Young's solo albums. Stephen Still is still, is still featuring. So like a lot of what I think I'll end up talking about with this record is the idea of a musical collective. Uh, I think that's really the best way to view Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young, and all these other people that were sort of in their orbit. So it, in the first case, I would say Neil's influence on this album is, is really big, but it also makes sense knowing the people that he was already collaborating with in Buffalo Springfield and in, in his solo work and in these other folk solo work as well. So um, I think his influence is really strong on the album. He's a real shredder in a way that like yeah. even Stills really isn't and that Crosby and uh, Nash never were. That's just not really what those two try to do. Uh, Stephen Stills is a great guitar player, but he's more of like a picky kind of acoustic bluesy guitar player. Um, whereas Neil Young's guitar tone is like out front in a lot of songs and that he really defined, I think, a guitar sound that people still love to this day. Um, so, yeah, I would say his guitar influence is really big. And um, this album in general was done less as a band and more as like separate entities in a lot of ways. I'm sure that's something that we'll talk about more. And so the influence of Neil Young being able to say, okay, give me this. I'll take it back to my studio, do some work on yeah. it. Or like he, he's bringing in his own things that maybe they, maybe they hadn't heard before. Um, it's just, it was a really interesting album process and Neil's commitment to this band that he was like buddies with, but not totally in originally um, is really interesting and, and an interesting marker in his career and for what it sets up for what's going to come in Neil Young's solo career. Yeah, I think that's really good uh, and a great perspective of labeling them as as a music collective, uh, simply just because um, everywhere you see they're referred to as a super group. And when you listen to them individually speak, whether it's in interviews or such, um, they always they definitely hinted to the fact that like this wasn't the end goal. This was just like a, a stop on the way there. So that yeah, that's really good. Yeah, great point uh, about that, um, touching on some of the things Jake said. Uh, you think of that iconic song, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song that's not on Deja Vu uh, of Ohio, 
Um, that's a Neil Young song. The guitar riff at the beginning, that's Neil Young. It's basically like Neil Young wrote a song and then these dudes sang harmony for him on that song. Yeah. Um, and, and that song, A, has one of the best guitar riff intros of any song in the world. And B, was, was obviously a very politically charged song speaking about the Kent State shootings. Um, it dropped two weeks after that national event. So, can, I mean, like the response time and that song still to this day is amazing. So just to, to Jake's point about Neil Young's style and his guitar tone uh, and how the band collaborated, Deja Vu is different than that. Deja Vu isn't just Neil Young had a song and everybody kind of like sprinkled some dust on it. This is, this is a lot more substantial than that. Um, that's a great example, Nate, in that Ohio song. The story that I love with that song in particular was um, it, uh, they had, you know, uh, released Deja Vu and their single of Teacher Children was climbing the charts. Uh, and it was, you know, at that point within the top 20, Graham Nash said it would have landed in the top five somewhere. Uh, and they absolutely they killed their own single by launching Ohio because of just how, like, uh, politically minded and just how like necessary they felt that song was. Uh, Matt, over to you, buddy. So I would love to hear, um, not knowing your previous knowledge of this group, when you bopped on Deja Vu for the first time a couple weeks ago, uh, what were your first impressions? Just like overall, you gave it a spin and your thoughts initially on this album was what? Yeah, before I dive into that, a quick aside to uh, the point that you brought up, Nate, and your point about essentially killing their own single, Tyler. Um, a lot of the things I found doing my research on this group to really augment my knowledge was so much overlap among other musical icons and other names. You're like, oh, wow, they're involved, they're involved, they're involved. The little bit of trivia about Ohio specifically is that uh, Joe Walsh was at Kent State at that time as a student. And, um, you know, when hearing about CSNY Ohio and hearing about, you know, how that related to him and then his work later in the Eagles is just like another another relationship that you didn't even. Wow. Where would that have come from? Um, but to your question, um, definitely like my first listen through. I'm not a huge album listener. Typically, I'm more of just pick apart singles. But I was like, wow. So there is these other songs I've heard on my dad's radio. You yeah, know, and it's uh it's definitely that relationship and why I have this love of 70s and 70s folk in particular is how I was raised between my mom and dad and their musical stylings. Um, obviously, there are some that stick out as more critical successes, you know, with that being Woodstock, Teacher Children, Our House. But, you know, um, I mean, jumps right away off the off listening is helpless for me has probably become mm. one of my favorite songs on the album. And just uh, the opening line, you know, there is a town in North Ontario. Just think about it. I don't even know how to like describe the opening of that song, the almost like cacophony of guitar and other augmenting sounds. But, you know, try, you walk into a record meeting today and you're pitching a song. And it's like, there's a town in, you know, uh, Idaho. You know, just something that sounds so unrelated to probably someone related to this. And then be like, wow, okay, sure. We're going to go with it because, you know, you're Neil Young. but it's just that what a, you know, what a way to just really field some of those songs forward, but definitely a very enjoyable listen. Yeah. That that's actually has always been really funny to me as well, because um, Neil Young is from Canada, right? Or 
uh, obviously Nash was from the UK uh, and the other two fellas uh, were from America, but it is really funny to me that like Neil's like, we're, I'm going to write a song about this specific little town that none of you guys have been to before. Um, but it's worth writing about. <laughs> I just think that's kind of a, I think that's a funny aspect. I would love to hear what some other favorite tracks were uh, that we could pick apart from this album. Nate, we can start with you if you don't mind. Just song that you really liked that you enjoyed stood out to you. Um, I love the song Woodstock um, written by Joni Mitchell. Um, she, the story behind the song is that she was invited to Woodstock. She was dating Graham Nash at the time. Uh, that we, we talked uh, before Jake and Matt jumped on here that Woodstock was the second show this band ever played. Um, and Joni Mitchell missed Woodstock to appear on a local cable station. Her manager thought it would be a better idea, <laughs> maybe not the right choice. Um, but she wrote a song about the, the event that she missed after talking to her friends about what they experienced there. And the song is so freaking good. And Joni Mitchell has a, has a version of it. It's a lot uh, mm -hmm. slower and more uh, kind of, Joni Mitchell is all over the place with her mel melodies anyway. And, it, and it's beautiful, but it's, um, I just love the song and, and the lyrics are wildly profound and they have appeared in sermons that I have preached before. <laughs> hey, um, that's good. You know, uh, we are stardust. We are golden. We are billion year old carbon and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Uh, that is a beautiful haunting image. Um, so for me, that rock and roll, uh, transcendent, hippie, gorgeous uh, sound. Um, and the other thing, uh, you know, not to, to jump around too much, but the song Our House was a love song that Graham Nash wrote for Joni Mitchell. Um, and I just think that, you know, these are obviously all friends and they're influencing each, each other. But Joni Mitchell, we're going to have her own episode about because she was such a huge influence. But to think that um, on this album alone, she's got two tunes that she's directly responsible for yeah. uh, is pretty amazing. Yeah, Nate, that blew me away to find out, you know, that it's basically about just them living together in Laurel Canyon and just basically is talking about what their lifestyle was. And it's like, I, I've heard that song so many times and I'm like, you know, I, I love that song. I was like, it's so simple that it's just writing about a guy and the woman he lives with. And it's like, Oh, that totally is what would make sense when you really think about it and break it down. He's got a chapter about his relationship with Joni Minow. Grant, Grant Mash does in his own autobiography. And um, you, you, if you can find it, you can get it from the library. You should, should read it because just reading that chapter made me so heart sick in the best possible way. Mm. It made the song even more beautiful uh, they were together for two years, but there was something about those two years that was obviously like profound and, and amazing in ways that uh, obviously translated musically um, all these years later. So, And to think that uh, the song is obviously talking about, you know, uh, a very ordinary day, right? Um, but as I was watching this interview with Graham Nash, he was talking about like the verses in that song were like, it literally happened. She bought a she bought a vase walking down the store. He said, "Go pick flowers. I'll light a fire." Right. So it was like it literally was just a story that he was like, "I'm going to turn this into a tune." And how beautiful it has become. Uh, Jake, uh, I would love to hear from you. What are just some tracks that you know popped off for you as you listened? 
Yeah, um, I, I want to mention about those, the two Graham Nash songs on the album, um, Our House and uh, Teach Your Children. Those are both, to me, very Brit pop influenced, more so than really anything else that uh, CSN or CSNY has done. And I wonder, they both got released as singles. So of the 10 songs on the album, Graham wrote two of them. They both got released as singles. Teach Your Children was the lead single, um, I, I'm pretty sure. And I'm, I'm wondering if it was like enough Beatles influence and Rolling Stone influence that the record label was like, oh yeah, let's get these songs out that kind of sound mm. like Beatles songs. Um, I think both of those songs, Our House and um, Teacher Children, both could be Beatles songs. Like if you were just listening to them in a vacuum without any context. Um, I like them both a lot, but they are a lot, uh, like I said, a lot poppier than the rest of what the album's doing. My favorite track is probably Almost Cut My Hair. It's a David Crosby track that like, he must have just told Neil Young, like, will you just destroy this track with guitar for me? Like, it's kind of a simple, straightforward song. I mean, the idea, especially in the, in the 60s and 70s, of somebody who's a part of the counterculture, counterculture movement cutting their hair was kind of a big deal. But it's not, a, it's not a like song about metaphysics or anything weird or psychedelic that Crosby would eventually get into. It's super grounded and straightforward in that way. And Neil Young's screechy guitar leads it off. And it's such a great, I think that to me is them at the peak of their powers of collaboration, where it's a song that Crosby wrote, but it's Neil Young and Stephen Stills and Graham Nash all contributing in this great way. Um, so that's probably my favorite track on the album. Um, I love Helpless, like Matt mentioned. That's <laughs> Neil Young's voice is so iconic and so amazing and so bad at the same time that like anytime his voice is out front, it's always a favorite of mine. And then I really like Deja Vu as well. That's another uh, track that Crosby wrote. It's the first song on side two, which we don't really, people don't really listen to albums at all anymore, but certainly not in terms of side A and side B or side one and two. Um, but that used to be a big deal about which song was going to be the first song on a side. Mm -hmm. And so I think Deja Vu is an important song and it's, it's really spacey and weird and kind of a preview of the direction David Crosby was gonna go uh, with his solo stuff. So. Uh, yeah, those are those are my favorites. I, I think about um, when I first popped it on, the thing that stood out to me almost instantly, uh, there's probably, you know, 10 seconds maybe of buffer, was when the harmonies came of the four of them on Carry On, my brain was just blown of just, you know, we just spent the last couple of weeks listening to Simon and Garfunkel, who... Uh, you know, are known for their vocal harmonies and just how beautiful they are. Uh, but when Carry On hits, I was like, oh my goodness, this is something different. Um, and, you know, we see that the band members had similar reactions when they sang together for the first time of, we're doing something special here. Uh, when thinking about my favorite tracks on this, on this record, I have to distinguish two different things. Uh, the differences between uh, my favorite track and the best track. Some people might think that those should coexist and be the same thing. Why wouldn't you like the best? To me, I think it's very different. Um, my favorite track on this album, I love Almost Cut My Hair. Uh, and it's funny to me that both Ewing and I, the two guys on this call right now that have man buns and have had long hair for multiple years now, uh, it's great that that's both of our favorite songs. But uh, Crosby's voice is so gravelly and I love it. Um, and as you mentioned there, at the uh, 
that like instrumental bridge when Neil Young's guitar just comes screaming in there and then you hear Crosby yell in the background he gives that like howl at the moon oh my gosh it sends chills down my down my back and I love it that's definitely my favorite track but um if we're talking about just the best song on the album um in my opinion I like the answer has to be Our House it's a beautiful song uh, it's so catchy and good, you know, like I've, I've told my wife this past week that like, that's the song I'm going to somehow like manipulate it into, uh, our children's brain of like, I want that song to be the father daughter dance at my daughter's wedding. You know, I just like to have a song of like growing up, uh, in a house, just of love and playing music and picking flowers. And that's just, that's just what I want. Uh, I think it's just a beautiful song, and uh, I, I believe that it is the best on, on the album. It's awesome. I, I want to say one quick thing about Stephen Stills, if that's okay. We haven't Absolutely. touched on any of his tracks. Um, he took the lead on Carry On, which we did touch on a little bit. Uh, that's a very collaborative track with a lot of great harmonies, as we mentioned. He also wrote and performed uh, 4 and 20, that little, little like mm-hmm. two-minute long acoustic song, which is really gorgeous as well. Um, I think Stills, to me, is one of – is like kind of the forgotten member of CSNY. Um, a lot of his music's hard to track down for weird um, like record label reasons. A lot of his stuff's not on Spotify. His, his first solo album, which comes out after this and kind of as a direct result of this, I'm sure we'll talk about that, um, but that's like not available on Spotify. He has a lot of great tracks. I think if I'm being honest, based on what I know about CSNY, he's a bit of a dick at times. And like, even the fact that he was like, Hey, Graham, you want to cover one of Joni's songs? I know you guys just broke up, but I was thinking maybe we'd cover one of Joni's songs. What do you think? Yeah. Um, so, and also, if you read about the Crosby, Stills, and Nash, their first album as a trio, it's pretty clear that he kind of had the reins on that uh, album. And like, he kind of talks about it like, that's eh, kind of my album, and Graham and Crosby were there to help. Um, and I, everybody, everybody in the band sort of agrees with that assessment. So I think of Stills as kind of the control. Not control mm. freak is probably too strong, but he definitely had a lot, a, a lot of hand in what this album ended up being. Um, and I do like his songs, but I think he is getting outperformed by his bandmates in, in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, like you see, um, I was seeing a lot in different articles and such that Stills was kind of the focal point that was, you know, the glue, I guess, that held the group together. Um and he actually wanted his name to come first in the band. He was like really pushing for stills to come first. Uh, but phonetically people were just saying like, no, Crosby sounds better first. And so he eventually, you know, conceded, but that's, you know, it's similar if he's just like, this is my group, uh, which is so funny because like we see Neil Young come uh, and just in all of his prominence and already an established musician, uh, you would think like, oh man, this guy's going to steal my limelight. And you kind of plugged that at least a little bit musically, uh, Jake, that he did. Uh, but it is interesting that those two were like the two closest in the group. Like they love each other. Even to this day, they talk about that. Like we fought all the time and, you know, we have very strong egos, but I've known Neil Young says I've known Steven Stills. He's my longest friend. And so like, uh, he's a brother and like we'll fight and all but we've done some great things together so that's always a funny dynamic when you think about their different personalities blending and how how well their their uh music was able to come as a result 
want to jump in on the yeah. love for almost cut my hair. Um, to me, you know, this album, one of the fun things about the album is um, because they have these four different musical contributors, there is a, there is a spectrum of sound, you know, and, and Jake was talking about the, the kind of British poppy influence. I mean, you think about um, teach your children well with the slide guitar at the beginning is like, is this a country tune? You know, like, but uh, what I love about Almost Cut My Hair is it, to me, it sounds very Pink Floyd-ish, you know, like kind of like even with the wailing into the microphone and the fade out, that's like very 70s Pink Floyd psychedelic rock um, because of their cohesion throughout the album. It's on the same al album as Our House, that kind of like staccato poppy piano driven you know tune um and it works because th there's these like this blending of voices and stuff but i i also want to give a shout out to that that's a great tune i, I kind of wanted to get a consensus on uh so i personally one of my favorites was actually uh, country girl which is mm. an amalgamation of three other songs that he kind of took a little bit from each of those and compiled them into one song and i mean just on a one-off, like that's a Neil Young song. Like, you mm -hmm. know, you take that and you could juxtapose that with, you know, Harvest Moon or Old Man. And it's like, okay, you know, these are his bread and yeah. butter, these yeah. type of songs. And it's almost, uh, I think, Nate, your point is so important that it's such a blending of different styles of these individuals that really just, you could pick it and pluck it and, you know, but they are still good together in an album. And it's not, you know, it's not necessarily like a story album. It's not an anthology. It's not a ballad-driven or operatic album. It's just these are good songs that we all put together, and they flow regardless of the setting, regardless of the type of music. And um, for me, although I have to give you a jig with 4 and 20, like I really like that song as well. Mm -hmm. But um, that just really stuck out to me as a song that I had never really heard before really listening to this album i'm like that's probably now going to be my spotify top 10 of the year that i'm like okay wow this is your favorite song this year i'm like i i believe it yeah, yeah but four and 20 fits in a really great place on the album uh a lot of times when, when people talk about like sequencing of albums a lot of times they'll, they'll use the term palette cleanser and i think that's a perfect term for what four and 20 is doing these other songs that are more of that that wall of sound that we talked about where it's just all four of these dudes are contributing in some way that one's just Stephen Stills, just doing like kind of what he does best with that bluesy uh, acoustic guitar. And yeah, it, it, the album needed something like that. Uh, I think if, if it was missing, you might feel the, the back half of the album that comes after, I think that's like the sixth song on the album. Those last uh, four tracks might feel a little bit like samey or like you're kind of burnt out on that sound. Um, and taking it down for those two minutes, I think really helps the, the rest of the album. Hmm. I don't know if you guys saw this. I learned this, you know, two days ago, like very uh, recently in terms of when we were about to record this episode. Um, so I'm not sure if you guys were privy to this info as well. I'd love to hear your reaction. When you find out that uh, since childhood, Stephen Stills has a, uh, a degenerative hearing disorder where he is actually fully deaf in one ear and has, uh, is operating on 70% on the other ear. He has a 30% block on the other ear. And as you listen to interviews, uh, if you're watching like video interviews from like the times progressing, you can hear it uh, 
affecting his speech more and more, you know, taking snapshots from the decades. I was watching an interview of him just a few years ago, and it was very obvious. Um, and when you watch, you know, interviews from like the 80s or something like that, it's, it's, it's uh, a lot less noticeable. Uh, but here is this guy who is, as we've said, this focal point of the band, this, you know, composer of sorts of pulling all of these different pieces together, uh, and he can barely hear. That was fascinating to me. I think that says something about basically the innate talent of the members of this group that overcoming a disability and a great, um, great bit of adversity to be successful that, you know, I can hear decently well and I don't have a musical bone in my body in terms of performance. Yeah. But um, the fact that you'd have to think that, especially, you know, as time goes on, it just becomes muscle memory and it just becomes like, you know, look at Beethoven. You know, um, true. you know, you, you it, it's just in your head and it's the ability to get that out. And you're going to be able to do that regardless of the limitations. But that's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah, it is good. And, you know, Dan Rather asked him in this interview I was watching with him. He asked, uh, how um, how are you still able to perform at such a high rate in Stills responses? Because I have David Crosby right beside me who will, you know, scream directly at me if I am even just an ounce off tune. He goes, that's how I still release good music because I have this, you know, absolute jerk that's beside me all the time that will let me know when my hearing has failed me. And I think that's really funny. Um, so Nate mentioned the steel guitar on uh, Teacher Children. We have to say that that's Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead mm -hmm. playing that, which again speaks to how collaborative these people were and you know how open they were to having people hop on for just a track. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't really like the Grateful Dead. I think they're fine, but Jerry Garcia is a legend in his own right, and it's very cool that this song that you know was everywhere at the time that people still know but that's jerry playing that that part that everybody loves um one thing i wanted to mention i probably should have talked about this when i mentioned neil when i was talking about neil young's influence um the point of this podcast is to talk about folk rock and you do a good job in the first episode of drawing the distinction between what folk music was and, and how it sort of led into folk rock i think neil young is the a very clear delineation between a folk album that was csn's first album and Deja Vu, the album we're talking about here, and just all of the additional rock influence that he brought. Mm. Like, I think he yeah. is what makes this a folk rock album instead of a folk album. Um, and I think that that guitar tone that he brings and that, that artistic influences is what brings this into the folk rock spectrum in, instead of just another folk album. Uh, CSN is great, but it's to me, it's very much a folk album. Like, if you listen to Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, you're not going to be thinking about rocking at all, hardly. Um, it's a great song but it's, it's just not necessarily rocking and mm -hmm. i think neil young's influence um, is a big part of that um something we should talk about is the kind of dark circumstances of this album um so david crosby's girlfriend had just died pretty pretty yeah. quickly before this album uh christine hinton which is an incredibly sad story and then nash and um stephen stills are both going through breakups as they're writing and recording this album neil young doing fine probably <laughs> he didn't have anything bad happen to him from what i can tell uh, but it's kind of dark circumstances, this whole album. Um, and it, I'm sure that affected the creative process. I'm sure that affected their ability and willingness to sort of collaborate uh, at times. And yeah, I think that that sort of pall that's over the entire process um, was probably at the front of their minds throughout most of it. So Yeah, Jake, I think um, that was something I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, you know, that first album, 
is really much like, you know, they're all falling in love and they're having, you know, these very positive experiences happening in their lives. But, um, you know, with deja vu, I can't remember who specifically said it in an interview, but it's not necessarily an album that makes you think of like, you know, a sunny day comparatively to their first album. So definitely, I think a lot of um, that sadness, especially for Crosby, can be talked about uh, threw out some of that songs and he'd break down in sessions unable to continue because of that loss he was feeling mm-hmm. so definitely a point to bring up um one thing i think would be cool to talk about is the actual like the cover of the album itself i mean basically you know just like a civil war tin type and how steven stills is a huge uh, he's a big civil war buff and i read a pretty interesting article discussing basically them shooting that and it took two hours and they really only got like two photos and the dog walked in organically. So it's just, you know, so much of it is just like happenstance and especially using that type of photography. And I'm like, you know, this is, that's much a seventies thing. It's like, they all go rent costumes from a costume shop and pretend to be, you know, civil war soldier and a cowboy and things like that. The album cover has been a point of uh, comedy for me because of the fact that if you're in the band, your name's a part of the band's name. Uh, unless you play drums and bass, we will also just put your name on the album cover, <laughs> but you're not <laughs> a member of the band name. That was yeah. always so funny to me. Honestly, for session musicians like Taylor and Reeves, that that was probably like a big deal for them. Like they had, they had been session musicians for a long time, and probably every other session musician from back then was like, "Oh my god, they got their names on the cover! Like, <laughs> yeah. They're not in the band, but that's cool. I want that perk next time." The other thing uh, I think that this album and certainly this band is so emblematic of that we we've touched on is just the whole Laurel Canyon uh, Mm -hmm. in the early seventies. So the Laurel Canyon is basically a neighborhood in LA, you know, (laughs) um, where so much of seventies folk rock originated. You know, we've talked about Joni Mitchell, um, Mama Cass from the, the, the uh, is, is in the neighborhood. Dylan's popping by every once in a while to hang out. And as you're reading these behind the scenes stories, it's literally like folks bought up houses in this neighborhood and they would just like walk over to each other's house carrying their guitar and they'd have dinner, smoke weed and just write music together. And mm-hmm. You know, uh, Neil Young's album after the gold rush uh, comes out in 1971 and it's it's out of the Laurel Canyon. And so like I, I this is fascinating to me, just even from like a metaphysical standpoint, is it like what was it about that place and that time that all of this gorgeous music manifested? Was it that the individuals were drawn together and it was that creativity that was playing off of one another or was there something about that space and that gorgeous you know palm trees and california sun that contributed to it Mm. um all of that is just so fascinating to me because you could draw like a five mile circle around that area and you you would be amazed at the music that lives in the american consciousness Mm -hmm. that came out of that place in that time uh, it's kind of wild to think about. This album's incredible. It's a masterpiece. It's the only good album that CSNY made as a quartet. Like the album that comes out after this that has Ohio on it is a compilation record. 
Four Way Street is a live album that's really good and important. And then they have a couple more, like one in the 80s and one in the 90s that are just both not very good. Mm -hmm. And certainly nothing approaching the level that they achieved here. Um, So when we are talking about like, if if something metaphysical or sacred is going on, um, I I don't even know if they would be willing to, to grant it those terms. But like those, these four dudes got together, made a masterpiece of an album and then kind of couldn't capture that magic again as a quartet. They all made great music after this. They all collaborated on great music after this on their solo projects and stuff. But there was, there's really not another good CSNY studio album. Uh, and I think that's yeah. important to recognize when we talk about this album's importance and its legacy and how lucky we all are to be able to listen to it. Yeah, uh, it really was an alignment of the stars. Uh, we see, obviously, drugs played a huge role in it. Um, for a lot of the members, David Crosby, most notably with his struggles with uh, uh, his addiction. Um, and also, again, just egos would get into the way of it. And so uh, as they were, you know, pursuing their own journey, it was tough to, I guess, get back together and recapture what they had. But we're thankful that at least in 1970, they were able to achieve this before uh, any of them really had ventured too far down the road in their own personal careers. To Nate, your point about uh, basically just like that point of ego and like just what a character truly like Crosby is. And like, mm-hmm. So um, when doing the research, I found, as you know, I'm a big lover of movies, but Crosby actually had just like a beat part in the 90s movie Hook where he plays a no. pirate. Seriously? Yeah, he, yeah, he plays a pirate uh, whose name is Tickles. Uh, and just kind of like a one-off scene. And he kind of talks about that. And he's like, you know, I've always been a pirate. This is like my chance to <laughs> do it, you know, do it big. And interestingly enough, you know, he comes from kind of a movie legacy. His father was the cinematographer that shot High Noon, you know, one mm-hmm. of the most arguably famous Westerns of all time. So just he as a character and just, you know, as his own entity plucked out of his musical prowess is just, you know, did time for drug charges and everything. Just what an enigma. Of the four guys, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, who is your favorite? Uh, mine's Neil Young, and, but I love them all dearly. And I think Graham Nash and Stephen Stills deserve more credit. But still, it's Neil Young for me. Uh, it has a lot to do with my, my dad's love of Neil Young and just how much, how many great records Neil Young has put out over his career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I have to agree with Jake here with Neil Young. Um, for me, some of the most evocative songwriting and lyrics ever. Hmm. Mine is David Crosby, and the reason is mustache. That's the reason. Hey, that's, that's a fair reason. That's the reason. I. I did like David Crosby a lot. Obviously, I said Almost Cut My Hair was my favorite on the album. Uh, But I really, really, really loved Graham Nash. And uh, his songs also on... His songs are, as we said, he only had a couple on this album that he wrote and was lead. But he has songs all throughout the CSN first album, first couple albums um, that I just really, really love. So when we see them break up and then get back together and do their little side projects... Crosby Nash is awesome and I love it because it's like wow this is this perfect duo for me to listen to and they do a great job um so I really like them last question and the most important question it really speaks to the heart of this show as a whole um I would love if we just ran through and you give us your reasons as to why you believe uh kids my age in their 20s and younger should be spending time with this artist is it worth it to listen to Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young in 2020, and why? 
Tyler, I think you kind of you kind of said it yourself right when we began it. You know, they're classified as a, a super group that, mm. you know, you, you think of them, you think of like the traveling Wilburys, you think of just people you need to listen to and the level of influence, their solo careers, just the, you know, the zig, the zag, the every aspect of their lives that really has an, an influence on music and contemporary music. Uh, you're well more you're more versed in contemporary music than I am but you know the only real group that I could think of that it's like you take talented artists and put them together right now is like fun you know and it's mm-hmm. um I think if people like the idea of that and like to see where that has come from they would yeah. be remiss if they didn't check out Crosby Stills Nash and Young and particularly this album uh, definitely is just a must if you call yourself a music lover or just really want to expand your palate that's good. That's really good. Jake? Yeah, um, I think this album to me works really good in either direction that people want to take it. So uh, I, th- and I think it's important for that reason. So if you're a person who doesn't know much about folk rock and you want a good sampling of what was mm-hmm. going on in the late 60s, early 70s, this album has distinct styles from four of the heavy, heavy hitters of the folk rock movement of the late 60s and early 70s. And I, I think maybe it's because I do care a lot about Stephen Stills as a solo artist and Graham Nash as a solo artist and David Crosby, Neil Young, obviously. When I hear the songs on the album, it's very clear to me that those songs belong to those people. So like Our House is a Graham Nash song mm-hmm. to me. I could pick it out of a lineup. Like Helpless is a Neil Young song to me. And so if you're saying, oh, I just want a little sampling of like, what were these guys up to? This out, al- You're so lucky that this album has collected it all yeah. for and you can really get a sense of what these four titans were doing uh, at a time when they were, luckily for us, collaborating together. And then on the other side of that, if you want this as your entry point to go deeper, this is a great place to start. You can get a sense of the sound from these four people. And then really one of the most important aspects of this album's legacy is that all four of them released solo albums in the next year that are all, all fantastic. So mm-hmm. if you want this album to just be a little sampler so that you can sort of dip your toe and understand more about this time, great, just listen to this album. If you want this album to be an entryway into all this other music that was going on at the time, listen to the four solo records from each of these four dudes that came out within a year of this album. Yeah. And you can really start to understand like how big their impact was, how sought after their work and their artistry was, because yeah, they were just producing such great music. They could do it as a, a team of four people. They could do it on their own with collaborations happening. So if you want it to just be a sample, it can be that. If you want it to be an entryway into something much deeper, it can be that. And that's why I think this is a great place to start uh, for somebody who's mm-hmm. just, just wants to learn more about this, this moment in music. Yeah, that's good. Nate? I think that one of the reasons I think it's worth a listen is that some music is good at a point in time. And then like as musical changes and preferences shift, you look back and you go, okay, well, you have to understand the context to know why this album succeeded, right? Um, I think of a lot of 90s pop like that as like, you kind of had to understand the context to understand why anyone would ever choose to listen to the Backstreet Boys, right? Um, (laughs) But this album is like objectively good 50 years after the fact. Mm. (laughs) It's just like the musicianship, even if the style is not your favorite, is amazing and so just the idea that that a song that an album can be good top to bottom 
in the fall of 1970 and still be just as evocative and powerful and, and moving at times in the fall of 2020 is enough reason for anyone to, to give the whole thing a spin. So when I think of why they're important, it's simply because of uh, it's undeniable the level of influence that each of these guys have had, whether collectively or individually. Um, and not only just on folk music as a whole, like we see them, uh, we see their influences drift into all sorts of different genres here in 2020. People really point back to any and all of these guys um, for why they write the way they write now. And so um, I just think like, uh, it's one of those things where these guys are just so important to the evolution of music that it would seem silly if you're trying to listen to more music, if you consider yourself a music fan, it seems silly not to listen to them. And it's one of those like, you're willfully ignorant because it's like, this is an album that's necessary to listen to. And I will, you know, admit personally, I'm sorry that it has taken me this long to get to. That's the whole point of this podcast. But uh, if you're listening and you're in your twenties or younger and you're wondering, is this worth it? I'm telling you, we need to be listening to this music and it's really, really good. Uh, these artists are um, trendsetters and they were social activists and they were incredible guitar players. They're great lyricists, and it's just one of those things that um, it would be it would be silly not to. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young is worth a listen for sure. And that's going to wrap us up for now. I want to give a special thank you to our guests on this episode, both Matt and Jake. I love you. I'm just so thankful that you guys agreed to come on the show. We had a great time. Thank you for the conversation. And if you like what you heard today, uh, we strongly encourage you to check out Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And anything those four may have collaborated on, they truly are world-class musicians, and their music is worth listening to, so please check them out. But if you're wanting more from us, have no fear. Nate and I will be back in a couple of weeks right here with some new friends talking about a new artist, as we are just excited to continue having these conversations about a forgotten genre of music. So please, stop by in for a listen, um, because at least for this summer, when you're here, the forecast is always high of 70s.